Hey, hey! Welcome back, my Freedom Pact family. I hope your week is going fantastic. We are bringing you an episode today into debt, money, and freedom. We are joined today by Rob Moore. Rob is one of the UK's top non-fiction authors. He has eight published books around these fields. Rob became a millionaire at 30, which, if you consider his trajectory, just five years earlier, he was £50,000 in debt. Rob has built the UK's largest property training called Progressive Property, which won Business of the Year in 2016. Rob has broke three public speaking world records. He's done over $100 million in revenue. He co-owns or manages 850 plus tenants. He is one of the UK's top influencers with over 775,000 followers. His podcast, which is fantastic, the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast, it's one I personally listen to, averages about 200,000 downloads per month. Rob is also an advisor on some massive boards to very big companies. So, As you can see, Rob is a big deal. And in particular, he knows a lot about the finance business. He knows a lot about mindset regarding money. He knows both ends of the journey, really, from being hugely broken in debt to being abundant with money. So we feel as if this is a really important conversation to bring to you. Lewis conducted this interview and I have to say I have listened back to it quite a few times. I think it's a fantastic conversation and one which could help you no matter where you are in your journey. So this podcast delves into things like how our self-worth and our self-image affects how much we can make per year, about what to do if you're in debt, about where to invest, about what the right mindset is about how easier it is to make money how to make money all these different things which this conversation will cover so guys i hope that you enjoy this episode if you enjoy it please leave us a rating and a review we love to hear from you all so please join the conversation send us an email freedompact at gmail.com everything will be linked below I'm so excited to bring you this episode. Guys, I hope you enjoy this one. Rob Moore, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Uh, look, my pleasure. Thank you. So when I was talking to a friend about this interview the other day, I put him onto your website to have a look at your story. And the thing that jumped out at them, they were shocked when they saw that it says on your website, became a millionaire at 30, having been an artist 50K in debt five years before. And they instantly said, that's the thing I want to hear more about. So before we get into the podcast, I'd just like you to maybe set the scene. How does someone, how did you end up 50K in debt at 25? Uh, well, it wasn't like I, you know, got addicted to drugs and gambling and build that debt in a week or two. Debt can really creep up on you slowly. So probably from the age of 18 to 25, 
I went to university, built up a bit of debt over time. I came back from university. I had debt. Interest started to roll up. I, I didn't really know how to manage money very well, Lewis. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of late payments on credit cards and a couple of big bills that when credit cards went from um, no interest to kicking interest in. I had a car loan and then I sold the car, but I still had the car loan. Um, I would buy things on credit because each month I would just have no money left. And actually, if you think about it, you only have to get a few grams of debt a year compounded in seven years to be quite lost and in a bit of a financial hole. And that was me. And just under 50 grand was my kind of floor. It was the lowest amount of debt. I got myself, highest amount of debt, lowest amount of personal wealth that I'd got myself into. And I just didn't know how to manage money. No one had really taught me. I hadn't taken any responsibility. I didn't really understand compounding debt and, and how it all rolls up. I used to pay the minimum amount off thinking I was paying off my credit card, but really all I was doing was pa uh, paying off interest. And I didn't understand that you should pay your um, highest amount of debt first. So I would spread my debt across all my credit cards and, and debts instead of getting the big one paid off first because that has the highest debt, which compounds the most. And yeah, I just got a bit lost and I, I didn't really have a good relationship with money, Lewis, because I was an artist and so I didn't really like people with money. I didn't really like the whole capitalism thing. I didn't think that it was good to be money focused. Um, I was just sort of trying to, you know, be creative and be arty and kind of didn't really respect the fact that you still need to sell your work and you still need to have a commercial uh, mind if you want to be a good artist. Uh, and yeah, just got myself stuck really. And, and this apexed in December 2005. So when you're in that sort of money hole, what, where are you in terms of mindset at that point? Did you feel like you were drowning? Did you see a way out or what was the mindset? Yeah, I definitely felt like I was drowning. Uh, and, you know, you feel like you're getting it from all sides and you feel like no matter what you do, uh, the situation never changes. I, you feel like no matter what you pay off, it doesn't seem to touch the sides. You feel like no matter what you earn, uh, it's never enough. You feel like no matter what you charge for your art, it's never enough. The end of the month comes far too quickly. Uh, when you do get money, it goes far too quickly. I think some of the personal development guys have a little saying there's too much month at the end of the money um, because this just uh, seems to be um, so much time when you seem to be chasing your tail or um, without money. And at the same time, there was always a little bit of serendipity where when I was really struggling, I just seemed to be able to sell a, a painting or when I had a big bill, I just seemed to get a bit of luck with, with my art. But I was just always treading water. And yeah, I, I definitely felt like I was in a hole. And, you know, people say our oh, money's not the most important thing and money isn't the key to happiness. Um, but I've been skint and I've been rich. So I've done an accurate split test and I know that being rich is better. Um, I'm certainly, um, you know, more grateful that I have money. I certainly don't take things for granted. Like I love buying, um, any time I go out for dinner, I always want to buy every time. And you know, a lot of the times when I go out for dinner, it's two, three, 500 quid. And I always want to get the dinner. Um, now, for me, that's a nice little thing. Um, and it racks up to thousands of pounds a month, even when I'm not being that social. But I remember that uh, just paying £20 for a dinner was a real like hard thing for me to do. So I, I still feel very grounded of the fact that I've got money now because I didn't have money then. 
But I found when I had money problems, I had more problems. Um, it's funny, you know, in those um, like rapper songs, they say, mo money, mo problems. Well, I found that less money, more problems. So my confidence was lower the less money I had. I remember I was dating this girl. She had to pay for everything all the time. And it was really embarrassing. And I felt like not a proper man. Um, and, you know, I went with it for a while because she was sort of okay to offer that. And I didn't really, well, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to see her really. But I felt awful about that. I remember actually a few months after we um, split up and I'd started to make some money, I actually wrote a check and I sent it to her for what I added up all the money she paid for me for stuff because I felt a huge amount of guilt uh, being dependent on someone. And that was a really horrible feeling to not be able to pay your way. And I was like that in my early 20s. I was always um, working at mum and dad's pub um, or, um, you know, tr trying to get the odd bit of side work and never really fully independent. Even when I had my art business, I had to work in the pub evenings and weekends from, you know, working for my mum and dad. And so I never felt fully independent, fully free to manage my own finances, like in my 20s. And in some ways it wasn't my fault. I just didn't know what I didn't know and I hadn't been taught. But I made it my personal responsibility to learn. And, you know, that's why I wrote my book, Money, uh, a guide for everyone so that you can um, self-teach on money management, mastering emotions around money, um, you know, good financial planning and management, understanding of how money really works because most people don't understand how it works. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, I... Um, admire you for wanting to talk about attitudes towards money, Lewis, because I think that there's a, a significant um, undereducation in money. And I think it does affect all areas of your life. And you are more happy the more money you have, generally speaking, um, because you can do the things that you love. And even if you're not money focused and you're not kind of uh, material, people say, oh, well, money is not about material things. It's about experiences. Fine. No, that's cool. If that's you. But experiences also cost money. And the greater experiences in life cost the most amount of money. Um, and, yeah, so um, I'm much more happy now I have more money. <laughs> and you meant, like you mentioned there about when you were dating a girl and, and feeling like less of a man, was there any specific moment like that or any switch that went off in your mind where you can attribute as the real turning point in your mentality and thought, right, now it's time to do something about this? Yeah, 100% for me. It was one day. It was actually one o'clock at lunchtime on December the 15th, 2005. I've been working for my dad in his pub since I was probably five or six years old. And my dad's an entrepreneur. He's the person I look up to the most um, living that I've ever known. And, you know, I get mentored by a lot of really successful people. I interviewed a billionaire for my podcast two weeks ago. Um, I've met a lot of very successful people, but my dad's the one at the top that I look up to. And he worked so hard over 30 or 40 years. He had a really hard upbringing. He didn't really have a lot of warmth and love in his family. And he had a massive nervous breakdown in his pub at one o'clock on a Sunday lunchtime uh, on a very cold December um, day in front of all of his customers. And really some of those customers were the only friends my dad had. And I remember being outside when the police came and they were beating him up and they really were beating him up. Um, smacking him with batons and all sorts. It was kicking off big time. And my sister was boiling her eyes out. My mum was just stood there frozen. And I was just stood there frozen. And it, it might not have been in that moment because I was probably quite um, stressed and upset. It was from that moment for probably about a week. I just spent a lot of time on my own thinking about my life and where it was and where I wanted it to go and my responsibility and my, the part that I played in my dad's nervous breakdown 
because I did have a part to play because I, di I didn't live up to my full potential and I was probably a bit of a drain on him. He put me through school, he put me through university, he put me through Sitzong College, he paid for pretty much everything. And yeah, I worked, but he gave me the work. Um, yeah, and so that was a turning point for me, Lewis, where I was like, I don't even really know if I could put it into words. I think the feeling was, Rob, you're a fucking loser. Look what you've been, look what you've done to your dad. Moss, it's not all you, it's part you. You've got to pull your finger out. You've got to turn your life around. You've got to stop being a victim. You've got to start working harder and smarter. You've got to get over yourself. You've got to put yourself out there. You've got to take some risks. You've got to do something bigger. Um, and, and all of that was just going around my body in the form of fear and shame and guilt and all these um, strong emotions. And that was the start of really my rebirth, if you like. And a week later, I met my business partner of today of 12 years at a property networking event because I actually went and got myself out there instead of just sitting in my house painting. Um, and then everything kicked off from there, bought hundreds of properties, um, probably generated more than 100 million pounds in sales since. Uh, like you said, became a millionaire between the age of 30 and 31, written 15 books. Um, yeah, my podcast done quite well. I uh, have quite a lot of business interests, keep a lot of my family. So a lot of my family either work for me or, um, you know, like I finance and fund their retirement, which feels really good. Sometimes, you know, there's pressure because of all of that. Um, I have nearly 100 staff. Yeah, and um, get to live a better life and help more people. And um, Martin has just put on this live um, you know, he can relate to this story because he's suffered a similar thing. A, a lot of people who turn their life around do so because they have something painful and difficult. And to me, comfort is often the enemy of greatness. And yeah, I like that was the most uncomfortable day of my life. But like, I keep trying to make myself uncomfortable on a regular basis now intentionally. So I don't rest on my laurels, so that I don't get complacent, so I don't get arrogant, so I don't get ahead of myself, so I don't get disrupted, so a market doesn't change, so I don't get, um, you know, um, a recession or Brexit or regulation, and so it doesn't blindside me, so that I can keep our business growing and, and keep moving forward. So when that moment happened, when that switch went off, the first step you took was, like you said, going to that networking event and doing something actionable, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I was a bit of a victim before 2005. I'd moan and complain about the market, the economy. There's no artists or um, art buyers in Peterborough. No one's got any money in Peterborough. There's no good agents in Peterborough. There's no good museums and galleries in Peterborough. There's no um, art competitions in Peterborough, blah, blah, blah. I just bitch and moan about everything. Oh, I'm not going to look at other artists because, you know, like I want to be a pure, a Puritan. I don't want to be influenced by other people's work. Oh, that artist is shit. That artist is shit. Oh, that artist who's made millions, they're just a, a capitalist scammer. How can you charge that much for work? <clears throat> and I was just, it was either outward or inward. Actually, the inward voices were probably louder than the, the outward. Um, and I just saw the downside in everything. And I just felt like a stuck and a victim. And you know, I wanted people to listen to my uh, violin playing. Uh, and then after that, I was like, no. Stop bitching, stop moaning, stop complaining, start getting out there and figuring things out. Okay, if you're not good enough, get better. Um, if you don't know what you don't know, then go and study and learn. and Go meet people, put yourself out there. If you get rejected, so fucking what? Get rejected again and again and again and again. Um, I've spent my whole life being rejected. 
And I had this moment between 18 and 25 where I hid from the rejection. And because I hid from all the rejection, I, I, I spent like pretty much all those years lonely. Um, I didn't get any um, hard, my working hardly any galleries. I didn't enter any art competitions just in case I lost or got rejected. And so I was, ironically, I, I, I got too safe, but therefore, because I was too safe, I put everything at risk because I was too safe. Um, and now for me, you know, my, my most common, famous, well-known saying is if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. So for me, it's getting yourself uncomfortable, doing things that challenge you, doing things that make you grow, facing rejection every day, getting rejected every day, regularly getting rejected so that you can keep feeling it and grow through it and master it and not take it personally. And the more rejection you take, the more rejection you can take. Um, and for me, that's been an important pursuit. I think a lot of people can relate to you in the sense that the way they were taught as a youngster about dealing with money and I think school teaches that us that there's one route to success and one route to money. What do you think the main elements are that school has missed with teaching young people about money and do you think they should have more of a responsibility to do so? Right, so I can't comment about what's being taught in current schools other than maybe my son and daughters. Um, and I think a lot of people have got a, a moral high ground view of what should be taught in schools, but they make a general comment and they don't really know what's taught in schools and they don't know how hard it is to run the education system that's probably underfunded, etc. So I do very much respect the school system for what it's done. Um, and, you know, I, I put my son through private school and it's a pretty good school. And it's got a lot of things good about it. But I'm going to now answer your question. When I was at school, I was never taught personal money management. I was never taught um, budgeting. I was never taught managing your emotions around money. Uh, you know, what, what things you would need to learn to be independent financially. You know, how to make money, how to create value, how to solve problems and pricing and fair exchange and currency and the definition of money movement. Now, of course, there were people that chose to do economics and there were people that chose to do business and money related content. And, you know, they may have studied the classics like Adam Smith or whatever. But even then, I don't think it was related to you as a personal individual. Also, it was very much geared towards public sector um, and not really for entrepreneurs, you know, who might sell lemonade on a lemonade stand or might sell stuff on eBay, you know, who might create a product and sell it or have a service or an app or an idea that they want to put to market and they weren't you, you, school system back then didn't really lean towards teaching entrepreneurship and start and scale up um, business enterprise now that is changing to a certain degree because i know people like Piers Linney and Sir tom hunter and you know other billionaires who are doing their bit in creating schools and universities and education and online platforms um, and training to teach all of these elements of, of managing money and that's why I wrote my book, Money, so that I could help people have a centralised resource where they could learn about all things money. I don't know if it's changed in 20 years. My guess is it's not changed as much as maybe it could because people are still talking about these things that, you know, there's not enough education around money and money management. I don't think there's enough scenarios. Um, I don't think there's enough education around getting out of debt. Uh, I don't think that there's... Um, you know, what do you do when you've got to pay rent and mortgage, um, rent or mortgage? Um, what do you do when, you know, you've got all these bills and expenses? Pe people are sometimes talk about compounding, but they're not talking about compounding and talk about compounding in reverse through debt. Um, 
you know, definitely the emotional side of managing money and the societal um, preconceptions and misconceptions around money, I don't think are taught in schools. And, you know, your judgments around people who have money and your own fears and doubts and insecurities and self-worth around money and, the, you know, the, the upside of money and all the good that money does as well as, you know, society generally project, projecting the, 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 the downside of money and how to use it as a force for good. Um, and, and how to create more of it in terms of a local or a personal GDP, not just a, a national and a global GDP. And like I said, how to structure pricing and um, customer service and creating extra value. I, I don't see much of that at all being, being taught in schools. Uh, and you know, part of my personal vision is to um, help as many people on the planet get a better financial education, to start and scale their business. Um, uh, and... My book, Money, and my foundation, I think, are starting the process of helping that. Uh, and I think there, there are a lot of very successful business people that are also doing that. But I don't think the school system is ruined. I think that it's good if you want to be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, an accountant, a solicitor. Maybe we just need a little bit more help and push for private sector, for enterprise, for entrepreneurship, for startups, for scale-ups. Um, and that's got to be taught by people who've really done it and not just lecturers. Something you mentioned, but there, I just want to you know, sidetrack onto. Um, you know, you're at a stage now where you're, you're successful. You've, you know, you've dealt with the problems you've had, and some people in your position would happily just live a comfortable life now. But you mentioned that you love helping people and helping people understand money. Is that where your drive comes from now? That you've, you know, made your money. Is that what your motivation is? So my motivation is um, quite complicated, and so I'll come to that in a moment. I think if someone's comfortable, who am I to tell them that that's wrong? I'm not here to preach to people who don't want to be preached to. And if someone's comfortable and they want a comfortable life, totally cool with that. I generally don't attract those kind of people to my mission, my message, you know, my um, social media following and, and, you know, the courses that I run. But I, it's okay. For me, it's not okay to be comfortable because I want to grow, because I want to reach more people, because I want to make more of a difference on the planet, I want to build a legacy, I want my work to be meaningful, I want to help solve people's problems, I do want to grow my own wealth, I do want to be able to do good things with my wealth, the more I grow, the more good things I can do with it, if you look at what Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and people like that are doing, I really admire that, and I want to do more of that myself, and my motivation comes from probably not quite feeling fulfilled yet. Now, I think that's okay, um, because if where you have a filled value, you no longer value it because it's full, you are fulfilled, and therefore you don't drive towards it. Um, so this is why people don't really worry about money until they lose it, or they don't have enough of it, and then it becomes more of a value. Um, for me, I want to be more recognized, I want to be more successful, I want to help more people. Um, I want to feel that I'm doing something valuable, probably because when I was younger, I didn't feel that because I was an overweight kid. I felt like I had a lot of bullying, even though most of it was probably in my head. Um, and, and so there's this void in me that needs to be filled, which probably never will be filled. And I speak to many millionaires, 100 millionaires. I spoke to someone on the Times Rich List just three or four days ago who have similar drivers of the same thing. And for me, it's okay. Like some people are like, oh, I'd hate to feel like there's always got to be more and you're always striving and it's never enough. I see that as a good thing, not a bad thing, because then that means that you've got variety. 
tomorrow breeds a new day. It means you've got new challenges to solve. You've got more opportunities, more discoveries, more freedom, more flexibility. It means that once you've achieved something, you've got something new to set your targets on, so something fresh and exciting. It means that you never stop. It means that you, you don't um, atrophy and get bored and rot slowly. But there are a lot of people who are rotting slowly in their careers over decades or they're, they're sort of uncomfortably comfortable and they want to make a change and they want to make a difference and they want to make more money and they want to have a bit more freedom and they want to do things that matter and they want to do things that they love, but they feel stuck. And those people I can help and those people uh, I want to help. And um, like I say, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. You mentioned there about feeling comfortable and um, it's something that a mutual friend of ours, Ollie Ollerton, uh, said when he came on our podcast and that he feels there's no true comfort in comfort zones. What ways do you try and step out of your comfort zone in life? It doesn't have to be in money, it can be in fitness, it can be in difficult conversations. Every day. So every day I try and do things that make me feel uncomfortable and um, some are small things and some are big things. Now, before I give you mine, because some of them are a bit embarrassing, Lewis, um, but I don't mind. Um, this is not me saying you should do these things. Um, you should do the things that make you feel uncomfortable because we all have different values. We all have different life experiences. Some things make me feel uncomfortable, but you would easily do and vice versa. Um, so I think you've got to find where do you want to grow and who do you want to become and what do you want to get better at? And then in those areas, things that make you feel uncomfortable, judged, make you feel risk, fear, shame, guilt, try and challenge yourself on those. Because there's no point getting uncomfortable for the sake of it in an area that's not really that important to you um, towards no goal or outcome. Because in some areas of life, I do want to be comfortable. Um, but in many areas of my life, I want to push and grow. So for me, lots of little things. I like to face rejection every single day. So I like to do things where I think, oh, I'm, I'm quite scared here that I might get rejected because, you know, it's hard not to take that personally. I think I've really grown with rejection over the years, but the bigger the person or the bigger the deal or the more it means to you, you're still going to have some kind of fear of rejection. So I try and face rejection every day. I try and do something that makes me feel vulnerable or, you know, maybe a little bit I worry about how I might be judged. So, like, if there's a photo of me and I think my face looks awful, um, you know, or I, my, my chin looks massive or I look a bit fat, sod it, just put it online, it doesn't matter. People aren't judging me for how I look, people are judging me for what I say, you know, I'm not a model, I'm not an Instagram influencer, people follow me for my content and my work, so what I look like doesn't matter, so I challenge myself with those things. Um, every time I have a shower, um, at the end, I turn it on to freezing and I stand under there and I count for as long as I can in a freezing shower. And that sounds like such a small thing, but like it, it actually, A, makes you feel really good, but a lot of days, especially when it's cold outside, I don't want to do that. No way. And my record at the moment in um, at my shower is 15 seconds. And my wife built me a new bathroom and shower because she doesn't want me to shower in her shower because I have my own shower. And it goes freezing and my record is 15 seconds. And I literally have to go oh, 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 the whole time. Um, so I do that. Um, I try and learn new things. I try and put myself in the student position. So sometimes it's very humbling to be a student, but it's good to be humbled because being humbled makes you learn more. It's the, the start of growth. It means you're not complacent or arrogant or, or you know, some of those um, things that people don't really admire. So I try and learn new things where even though I might be successful in A, I am now your humble student. I, uh, you know, I might go on your fitness boot camp. 
you know, or I might do something that you're a master in and I'm a disaster in. And I'll try and do that and, and make myself, um, you know, uh, learn again from the start. Because I, I, I remember the, the quotes from some of my mentors. Every master was once a disaster and every winner was once a beginner. Um, I try and um, keep my mouth shut when I want to respond or retaliate. I try and apologize in a situation, even if I don't really feel I've done anything wrong, but I'm trying to be the bigger person, the better person to, you know, make the situation right, trying to manage my own ego. So when I get defensive or triggered or something upsets me, I try not to dump that onto someone. I try and hold that in and, and act in a, you know, a more professional or um, sensitive way, etc., etc. I try and test myself with my fitness. I try and test myself with my mentality. I love meeting new successful people. I love meeting people who are like deemed in society as much more successful than me, which can sometimes trigger your own insecurities. Um, and that, by the way, for, I've just learned to really enjoy that and, and have that as a fun thing. I try and interview guests that are controversial from time to time. I try and um, put myself out there to be ridiculed and critiqued a lot more. Is that enough for you, Lewis? That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I can add one more. I mean, speaking of things that are uncomfortable, and you mentioned your um, you mentioned your record in the shower. It made me, you know, something we talked about before we went on here, and that's your your, your Guinness World Record of your your business uh, speech, and that lasted what forty six hours. What was the motivation behind that, and and yeah, why did you do it? Yeah, so forty seven hours straight. I did it because I wanted to be a bit more disruptive in the property training space. No one had done anything like that. Seminars have got a bit boring and I wanted to freshen it up, one. Two, I'd always thought it'd be quite cool to go for a world record. I can't do that many press-ups or chin-ups. I couldn't really think of anything else that I could do well and get a world record and was linked to my business, so conceptually it worked. Um, it was also a commercial thing. Uh, we did, we um, The first one I gave £35,000 to charity, give or take, um, and then others were a bit more. Some One of them was about 50 grand because I broke the team speech world record as well. So there was the charity element and it was good for my business, good commercially. It generated quite a few hundred thousand pounds in sales, um, uh, uh, you know, on, um, ongoing afterwards for all the new interest we generated. So there were lots of different reasons. The commercial, the challenging myself, the getting uncomfortable, the goal-orientated thing that many entrepreneurs, you know, they love to set and challenge themselves for goals. Uh, and I feel ready now at 40 years old to get back into that frame of mind and step out and do some more challenging, fun, difficult, hard, crazy things. Not tough mother types, you know, but things that are relevant in my um, business space. Love it. So if we switch it back to money for a second, um, I mean, I think we're in a time right now where student debt is at its highest ever. I think I read a stat the other day that the average household in the UK saves three pound for every hundred pound earned if you wow. could go back to age 80 what would you change about your story i mean not in the sense that obviously you've learned a lot from your story but what would you do different at 18 like what would your journey be in terms of university your attitudes towards money at that point in your life for a young person then i'm with you so a lot of this depends on what you want to do and who you want to be and I didn't know what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. So the absolute step zero, which is vital, is to think more about who you are and what you want to be. And by the way, it's okay to take time and it's okay not to have that figured out for a few years. I mean, if you're 18, you've got 80 years of your life probably left. Um, but every day ask, who am I? 
Who do I want to be? What do I want to do? Who am I? What do I, what do I want to do? Who do I want to be? What do I love? What could I do as a profession that's also a passion? You know, what makes me feel alive? Um, what am I great at and what could I get even better at? And ask that a lot. Once you've done that, then you've got to follow that path. Now, let's make the assumption is becoming an entrepreneur or setting up an enterprise because that's more what we do as opposed to having a career. But you probably do similar things. So you then want to get good mentors. So you might want to work for a good company, get a good mentor, get a sort of like an apprenticeship from someone who's successful and been there and is like got 50 years more experience than, than you. You're going to learn way more from them by osmosis than you are reading, you know, Adam Smith and early books on capitalism. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, I think the next thing is um, commit to being a student of all things money and finance and capital. Now, you don't have to be a hardcore capitalist to learn about money, understand about money, you know, uh, how it works. Let's be honest about this. We have universally voted and agreed in society that money as we know it is the agreed universal exchange of value. It's the exchange of products and services. It's the unit and measure of account. Um, and a way of measuring consistently the value of ourselves and our products and our services. We've all bought into that, whether vicariously or we've actually voted. So you might as well learn how the system works, because the better you know the system, the better you can play the game. So make it a lifelong pursuit to learn about money, finances, personal um, money, money management, wealth, because the difference between money and currency and wealth and finances, they're all different. They might say, seem similar words. But they're all different. Wealth actually means well-being. Currency actually means flow or to flow from the, I believe, Latin word carere, C-U-R-R-E-R-E. So understanding how money works in the system and how it works for you and things like value exchange and fair exchange. Um, and my um, formula for wealth, wealth equals value plus fair exchange times leverage. So working on scale, working on, is it volume or margin? Um, what new problems are happening in the world, whether it's climate or plastics or small problems locally that need solving, that no one else is doing, that you could create um, a, a goodwill business on, you know, doing good, making good money. Uh, and get listening to podcasts and reading books and listening to audio books and going on courses and seminars and being part of mastermind groups, etc., all around business and wealth and finances. If you make that a lifelong pursuit, you invest as much in yourself as you do your car every year, then um, you're going to go places. And uh, you can make money doing what you love. Uh, and I think actually some of the best businesses do that. And um, it's kind of like a bit of a, it's a bit draconian to think that, you know, money is about selling out and greed and um, evil capitalism and, you know, just giving a third of your life away and giving your pound of flesh. It doesn't have to be that anymore. You know, there's little kids who open up um, toys and go through the instructions on YouTube who make $22 million a year. There's these young influencers who make fun little videos and make millions of dollars a year. I love public speaking. I get paid for that. I love podcasting. I get paid for that. So that's what I would say if you're 18 or even if you're 28 or 58 and you're at a crossroads and you sort of want to start again. And I would also say, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. So stop thinking about it. Stop procrastinating for years and years and years. Stop dying slowly and start doing something about it. And that might mean five or ten hours a week part-time. 
That might mean making a dramatic change. I'll leave that up to, the, to you. But do not let it go on quietly for a long, 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 long time. This is why I kind of don't like comfort too much. Because it can catch up on you where you're like, wow, I'm, I'm 35, I'm 45, I'm 55. It's like your health and your fitness. Like I have these little moments where I'm getting a bit tight in the 34-inch waist. I hate that because it reminds me of being fat, so then I lose my weight. But you don't have to eat much more than, say, 50 or 100 extra calories a day, which you, you wouldn't even notice. And take a 10-year trajectory, and you could be two stone heavier and, and probably not very healthy. So comfort can catch up on you really freaking slowly, and that scares me a lot. Something you said there about passion stuck with me because it's something I've always wondered since we've been doing these podcasts we've speak, spoken to a lot of uh, people in business and there are a lot of conflicting views on this uh, a lot of people in the personal development space especially will say that you should always follow your passion and that money will always be a byproduct of that in some way and then we spoke to I don't know if you're familiar with him but we spoke to MJ DeMarco yeah and uh, he said that don't chase your passion chase market needs and I wonder what your opinion is on that balance between passion and what the market needs. Okay, so I always try and listen to everyone, and I don't know the context of which that was said, Lewis. So I'm not just going to patently disagree with that because I don't know the facts of that. But from just what you've said, don't follow your passion, chase market needs. I think that's not the full story. It's part of the story. And so I part agree and part disagree, because if you chase market needs, doing something the market needs, but you hate, I don't think that's the way to live your life. And actually, people say to me all the time, hey, Rob, what's the best business model right now? What's the quickest way to make money? And I often should say, do something you love, because if you do what you love, you'll endure the challenges, you'll get up earlier, you'll stay later, you'll fix the problems, you'll do it for a long time. And just chasing market needs where the market has need and you don't have passion, as soon as you don't like it, there's customer service, it's difficult, you've got challenges, you're going to be like, fuck this. And I've seen so many people start, stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. So I think the answer is a little bit more holistic, Lewis. And I would say, there's no point doing what you love, like, I don't know, making cupcakes only for people with the name Bethany and only in pink, and only selling them in Peterborough. That's obviously stupid, there's no market. Um, but if you are a baker, or if you love cooking, I would, I would pursue that as a business model because people have proven that you can make loads of money out of that and you can be very successful. So I think you, you have a passion that you can turn into a profession that there are market needs for, and then you win. But I don't think, chasing market needs just for money and selling your soul and doing something you don't enjoy for a long amount of time is the right solution. But your guests may not have said that and they may have been questioned by you in a way that they have to answer A or B. Um, but often when people say, Rob, should you do A or B? Um, I, it's, it's often not as binary as that. It's like, well, could you do A and B? Is there an option C? Uh, and people don't think they're always looking for the right way or the wrong way or the only way when in reality there are multiple options. So I think if you find something you love to do in a, um, a market that has need and demand in somewhere where you can charge fair exchange fees, because, you know, there might be market need, but the price might be too low. So you need the fair exchange and the fair margin. 
um, something you're prepared to endure the challenges of, um, then I think you're now building a nice uh, package towards doing more of what you love and making money doing it. So before we move on from money, and I really do appreciate the, the conversation we've had on money because it's something I think that a lot of people you know, are a bit scared to talk about. Um, Can I just jump in on that, Lewis? Yeah. I think if, if there's something I want to do more of and get in people's faces about and challenge a lot of people is I want there to be much more dialogue around money. So there's a really nice movement at the moment going on where people are talking a lot more about mental health. And they're being much more open about it and it's less taboo. And I'm also a big champion of that. I've done that a lot with some of the challenges I've had. My dad has bipolar um, and some of the challenges he's had. My mum came on my podcast and did an interview for, uh, all about depression and anxiety and uh, mental health issues. And I think that's really great that the world is finally embracing that. And men, especially because the suicide rates are much higher and we're, we're much less um, open to being vulnerable. There's a good positive movement there and we need to keep doing that. And, you know, people like yourselves and myself are going to do that. We need to fucking do that about money because money is not all bad. It is not all evil. It is all not about greed and power. It is, of course. But the thing with money is it's no different to anything else in humanity. So there's always greed. There's always power. Um, you know, there's always just um, a, an over hunger for goals and results and screwing people over in any area of life, not just in money, because that's a human trait. So human traits exist in every market, in every niche, in education, you know, in healthcare and in um, money, uh, but also giving millions and billions back, creating foundations, doing good with money, helping people with money, setting up charities and foundations and you know, always spending money on other people and using money for good and using money for further investment, etc. That's all um, a reality of what people do with money as well. Um, if it, capitalism and free markets both rely and force innovation into the marketplace because the competitive element means if you don't innovate and improve, you fall behind or you die. So capitalism in and itself encourages and forces investment, innovation, improvement and progress. So, yeah, I think more of us who have a good relationship with money, who have learned about money. Obviously, I've written my book, Money. We need to shout from the rooftops that there's a big upside to money. There's a good side to money. There's a, a gracious and giving and kind side to money. And um, I want to help people learn how to use money for a forceful good. Money is not good. It's not bad. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's an enabler. It's an accelerator. And money tends to pe make people more of who they already are rather than someone they're not. Money doesn't change people. People change people. So there's a load of really bad advice. In fact, you know, they say things like, you know, oh, well, money will change you. No, it won't. Um, you will change you. Oh, you know, billionaires are greedy uh, tyrants. No, they're not. They were greedy tyrants before they came, became billionaires, etc., etc. Um, and I know this because I've learned it over the decades um, and I've met a lot of millionaires and billionaires. And like I said, um, I became one myself, not a billionaire. Um, I'm actually not bothered about being a billionaire. And no one gives a fuck if I'm going to become a billionaire. You don't want to hear me say, oh, yeah, I'm bothered about being a billionaire. I'm not bothered about being a billionaire. I made a million, I made 10 million, I made more, I'm kind of, I'm happy. I'm bothered about helping people solve their own problems, helping people help their communities and niches and clients solve their problems, making money doing what they love, using business as a force for good, um, you know, accepting fair profit and fair exchange for the work that you put into what you do. That's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. So sorry, you didn't get to answer your, ask your question, Lewis, but I just wanted to talk about that 
putting more positive, balanced information education out there about money and what it is. The beautiful thing is you almost read my mind because the question was going to be, uh, what are your most empowering beliefs related to money? And I think you answered that perfectly then. <laughs> okay, well, I'll just, I'll summarize them and I'll add a couple more then, Lewis. So one is um, money is money. Money is not anything else. So money is an enabler of good. Money is an accelerator. It's a fuel. Um, you know, money is a universal exchange of value. It is not greed or power. People are greed and power. Um, there are massive philanthropists as well as huge, greedy oil tycoons or whatever we perceive. Um, all the things you want to do in your life that make you feel alive and grateful and free cost money. Um, you know, vagabonding is not that easy to do. And so if, you, you know, people always say to me, oh, well, Rob, it's not about material items, it's about experiences. Well, I have a very expensive record player. And that is a material item, but it's also an experience because me sitting down and listening to vinyl just take, escapes me to another part of life. I can never get there. Um, and all the problems I might have going on in the world, no matter how hard they are, um, you know, I could, someone could be nicking all my possessions out of the other rooms in my house. Someone could be upstairs banging my wife. And if I'm listening to vinyl, I have no idea that any of it's going on. Life is just good. Um, and, you know, that record player was probably 30 grand. And it makes me feel amazing. And um, people come over and listen to those records and they're like, wow, it sounds like nothing I've ever heard. And um, you know, I buy records for other people after they've come and listened to it and it connects people together. Um, yeah, so that's a great example of money and capitalism um, and the art and the beauty and the human spirit into these material items. But if you're not interested in material items, total respect to you. But you might want to um, send your whole staff to a beautiful country for like a team building retreat. Well, that's going to cost you a load of money. Um, you might want to put your kids through private school. That's going to cost you a load of money. Okay, you don't want a nice car. Okay, you don't want a nice house. And I respect that. But all the things you want cost a lot of money. That's a perfect way to sum up that portion of the conversation. And once again, I'm, I'm really, I really appreciate that. And um, just on a side note, what is your favorite vinyl? Because I collect them myself. Ah, uh, well, uh, the music I listen to, um, it's a bit um, filthy, and I generally tend not to share too much because I like heavy, me I like heavy metal. Same. Uh, probably the, be the, the best recorded vinyl I have would be um, Porcupine Tree. Their recording quality is really good. I have to have good recording quality. So I can have an, an album I love, but if it's not recorded very well, I, I generally just tend to listen to it on digital. Um, Radiohead's pretty well recorded. Some of their stuff I love listening to on vinyl. Um, so I'd, I'd probably say those two. Some of Elbow's stuff is, is like, especially the song Fugitive Motel. That, that oh man, that that can make me very emotional listening to that on a, a really good system. Female vocals just come on alive. Um, even like Michael Jackson, which is very simple music, sounds amazing on on, on good record players. <laughs> so you mentioned. What's your favourite vinyl? My favourite one that I own is the original press of Queen One, the first ah. album. <laughs> um, so we've mentioned you are, you know, you're, you've written many books. Uh, you've just written I'm Worth More. What prompted you to write this book specifically and what are you hoping to achieve with it? Okay, so I was really clear about this. For like a decade, I've been helping property investors and entrepreneurs start up, scale up, do what they love, love what they do, make more money, you know, doing good in the world. And... 
behind all the viewings and the offers and the raising finance and the getting the deals done and the managing the properties and the starting the business and the hiring the staff and all the stuff I've taught, behind it all was self-worth, i.e. the more you valued yourself and felt worthy and had self-worth, the um, easier, quicker um, you would go out there and implement what I teach you to have a successful business. Um, the more you could take rejection, the thicker skin you had, you know, the, the more prolific you would be, the less you would procrastinate. So underneath everything, like the foundations of a house or like the underground network of, um, you know, underground rail and sewage and everything else, that's the network underneath the surface, um, your self-worth and how you value yourself and how, you, how much you believe in yourself and um, the things that you hold as huge amounts of guilt and shame that you carry with you. It was like, you can't really teach anyone a strategy unless they've sorted out some of their past and their baggage and their self-worth. So you increase your self-worth, you increase your net worth. You increase your self-worth, you can increase your prices. You increase your self-worth, you increase the value you put out to the world. You increase your self-worth, you put yourself out more there on podcasts and lives and make yourself feel uncomfortable. You increase your self-worth, you can take more rejection. So that's why I wrote the book. And because I've dealt with all that shit in my own life. You know, being overweight and bullied and having to get really uncomfortable and doing things that made me feel very vulnerable and exposed. Why does self-doubt play such a big role in people achieving their dreams? Well, because if you have a lot of doubt, you don't go out there and get things done. And if you don't get things done, you don't achieve your dreams. It's really simple. Um, and it's not about not having doubt. It's about doing things despite your doubt. And that's about getting uncomfortable. Now, don't do things like give all your money to someone who's just emailed you from, you know, a foreign African country and, you know, got a great business opportunity for you. A lot of people think when you get uncomfortable and take risks, you know, you can lose everything betting on um, red um, or green. Uh, I think my microphone just dropped. Is it still on? It's still on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So take progressive risks um, where you protect the downside as much as you can, but go into the unknowns. And that never goes away, by the way, because each time you take a risk and you step up to that next level, there's another level of risk. 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 So it's a progressive, iterative um, process. Um, but you're always going to have doubts. Like, I guess I used to think as I got more confident, the doubts would go away. My doubts just move. And I just have bigger doubts in bigger things. Um, so it's about, you know, feeling the doubt, feeling the worry, feeling the, the fear of rejection holding your breath and just moving through it, rhinoing straight through it, running straight through it. How can we build that certainty, that feeling of confidence around knowing how much we are worth? What are the actionable steps? Sorry, Lewis, there is no certainty. Um, And of course, the more certain you feel, the more confident you feel, but there is no certainty. Nothing is certain. So I think if you can get 80% certain, then you're good, aren't you? So I think the actual answer is, how can you get as certain and as focused and decisive as is humanly possible in the situation that you're in? Because there are unknowns. And when there's unknowns, there's always a a fraction of uncertainty. Because by the way, if you're too certain without proof, that's called delusion. So I like to say to people, get 80% of your research done, get 80% clear, 80% certain, 80% planned. You get to a level where you probably can't really go any further without actually fucking doing it. Or you've just got to discover through testing and then get out, get out there and go do it. What's the process we can use to determine to ourselves exactly how much we're worth? 
well, there, there is no limit on what you're worth. That, you know, there's going to be trillionaires because of how quickly technology and AI and um, software and microchips are, uh, are compounding. There is no limit to what you're worth. But there is delusion that you sell packs of peanuts and you can be a billionaire. So there's that balance between, okay, what I mean and what am I doing? What can I be worth financially? And if I want to be worth more, do I need to do something else? But there is no limit. But at the same time, what are you measuring? Are you measuring finances, wealth, or self-worth? Because finances is money, wealth is well-being, and then self-worth is how you feel about yourself. And sometimes, like I have a supporter program. I've got 2,050 supporters at, at the moment. I had 2,075, but at the end of the month, if you unsubscribe. It's £3.49 a month on Facebook. So what is that? Seven grand a month. To me, that's not a lot of money. But I feel really good about that and what I'm doing in my community for Facebook supporters and the value I'm adding. I'm, I'm adding £3,499 a month worth of value. People always say to me, they can't believe it's £3.49. It's crazy, the value that I'm giving. So financially, seven grand a month to me is nothing. Um, but what I do in that supporters groups group makes me feel amazing. So that's one measure of value. And I feel really good about that. But my company might do 15 or 20 million quid and that would make me feel good in the financial element so what are you measuring when you're measuring worth and i think self-worth external worth and value and net worth are like a triangle where they're all interconnected and if you can manage and master and grow and develop all three because sometimes what makes me feel amazing is doing a 15-minute call to someone who's depressed. Um, I've done probably three or four calls in the last month of some people who are suicidal and just talk to them, and they're still here. And that makes me feel amazing. And you could probably give me 50 or 100 grand, and it wouldn't feel as good. 10 million by it. <laughs> um, but I still need to make the money because I am in the capitalist world you know, I am running a, a venture which needs to make profit, otherwise it can't sustain. So it's probably balancing all those things. How important is our own self-image and self-love in determining how much we get paid? Oh, it's like virtually everything. If you don't value yourself, how will anyone else value you? If you don't value yourself, you won't price yourself fairly. If you, if you don't believe in yourself, why should anyone else? So work on your self-worth, you work on your net worth. Believe in yourself more, you can charge more. Remember that your worth and value isn't just what you've done last year. It's what you've done your whole life, and it's who you are and what you know and where you've been and the challenges you've had, not just you know, the fact that you're going to start a business and you don't have a lot of experience. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, obviously, you, you've, encountered them throughout your life and I'm talking about negative thoughts and what is your process with dealing with those and how is that different now to what it was maybe back when you were 25 years old okay so I don't want to create the illusion that I'm all hyper positive and steely in my mindset I still feel fear shame guilt rejection, uncomfort, 
anger, resentment, envy, etc. Because they're human emotions and they are there to serve a purpose. So every human emotion has a purpose and it reacts to the environment to help us survive. I think what's different is I'm more self-aware now of what those emotions mean. I'm better at controlling them, though not perfect. And I can act, decide, think and feel in a more controlled way, i.e., let's say something someone says or does triggers me. I would eat in the past. I would either bottle that up because I didn't like conflict. I'd subordinate to them and I'd do that for six months. And then I'd have an absolute massive meltdown usually to someone close to me. And it wasn't even them who did it. They just triggered it one final time and they were the straw that broke the camel's back. And that was unhealthy. And I didn't want to be like that, but I didn't know any other way. Um, or I do the opposite and just react and retaliate and, you know, like spit back and fight like I'm like that strong when in fact that's not emotional mastery at all. So I try my best to feel my feelings and then get self-aware enough to go, hmm, why did I feel that? And is that really them or have I been triggered? You know, is it my past coming back to haunt me? Is it, is it fair that I am going to blame or resist or push back on them? Or, you know, can I just think about what this really means and then take some time to evaluate it and then decide and act based on facts and not emotion. Now, apparently when you're triggered emotionally, and you know what that means, it means you just get this rush uh, of strong emotion. Um, you can get flooding and that lasts about 90 seconds. And I think a lot of us in those 90 seconds fuck up our whole life because we react emotionally in the moment, write emails that cost us millions, you know, push people we love away, lose clients, get into legal cases because of that 90 second emotional flooding. And then when it's gone, you regret it. So I try my best to have let that emotion subside and not fuck up my life in those 90 seconds. Um, and so that's my ongoing pursuit of mastery. And I'm better at it than I was when I was 25, but I'm definitely not perfect because what happens is each, each level of mastery of emotions that you conquer there's just a new level because I, I have loads of critics on online. When I say loads, way more than I had when I was 25, but a lot less than, say, Russell Brand or someone more famous. And I can deal with them a lot better now. And actually, a lot of them make me laugh and I have banter with them. But if Russell Brand critiqued me, I might hurt because he's a, an influencer critiquing me. So and that might trigger my past. So then I've got to go, OK, whoa, feel that. Go away, don't write anything, don't do any voice memos, don't retaliate. Think about it for nine seconds, a minute, two minutes, five minutes, and try and turn it into something positive. And that's the ongoing pursuit of personal emotional mastery. And I'll tell you what taught me the most about emotional mastery, two things, business and intimate relationships. Um, in intimate relationships, you react to your partner, and 99% of the time, your partner isn't thinking or feeling what you think they're thinking or feeling. And you're reacting to them when they're not thinking and feeling it. And then, so you end up arguing about things that weren't the origin of the source. So something happened, they react, you react, they react, you react. You start arguing, but now you're arguing about the non, the, not the original thing that wasn't the thing anyway. And I think that's really damaging to relationships. And also with business, the more you blurt your mouth off and lose your shit, the more it costs you. So I just learned in business over the years, keeping my mouth shut and trying to manage my emotions 
saved me a lot of time and a lot of money. And in the cases where I did it in the past, it cost me a lot of time and a lot of money. It can put you in employment tribunals. It can get you legal cases. It can get you into a load of shit. You can lose clients. You can lose reputation. And so those two things kind of forced me to get better at it. But it's an ongoing human pursuit, and I definitely wouldn't say I'm a master of it because I'm quite an emotional guy. And I do. I am driven more probably by emotion than logic. That's a fantastic answer and full of actionable advice. So I, I really appreciate your answer on that one. Um, My pleasure. Before, as we start to, to wrap up, we have four questions, four quick questions that we ask every guest that comes on the show. Are you okay to answer those? Fire away. Okay, so the first one is, you're obviously an extremely successful author yourself, and your books have impacted so many people. Are there any books that you've read in your life that have greatly impacted you? Probably the single book that I like the most would be um, Total Recall by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I just think he's been so successful in multi-disciplines in a very positive and uplifting way uh, and really, from an immigrant background, fell in love with a country full of opportunity and is still a massive champion for that company and is still rocking it, you know, probably, what, is he pushing 70 now? I love the guy. I was really fortunate to meet him and that would probably, if I had to pick one book, that would be it. Are there any societal rules or societal norms that you love to break? Just generally being told what to do. Um, I, I generally don't like being told what to do. And um, probably the most common is when people say you can't do this. That word can't is definitely a trigger to me. Uh, and if someone says you can't, I immediately just think, well, I fucking can and I fucking will. So go fuck yourself. And I say that in my head, not to them. But it's a real, it's a motivator for me. And it's not always good, by the way. So I'll put you a scenario now. If everybody in the world was tuned into the same frequency and someone said to you, Rob, we're going to give you the opportunity to broadcast one short but simple message and everyone in the world will hear it, what would Rob Moore's message to the world be? If you don't risk anything, you risk everything. I had a feeling that's what it would be. <laughs> uh, the, final, the final question is, we ask all our guests, if you could come up with a challenge for our audience this week, if there's anything you could think of maybe to do with money or, or growing as a person, is there any way you can challenge our audience? Can you issue them a challenge? Yeah, so I did a six-day Make Cash Challenge in my Facebook supporters program, uh, and I created a plan for that. And so I would say if anyone's starting or scaling a business, uh, I would spend the next six days putting as much content on social media as you can, calling all your clients past and present and getting feedback and discovering if there's any way that you could help them serve them, improve your service and or offer them more products or services. Um, call all old leads or old clients, offering them a new product or service um, and just spend the next six days trying to grow your business a bit with things you know what to do and how to do it, but probably don't because you're comfortable. Perfect. Rob, where can our audience connect with you? Okay, so uh, my podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. You can find that on anywhere online where you get podcasts. 
Um, and if you search my name, Rob Moore, M-W-R-E, you can find my books, you can find my social media channels. Um, Rob Moore Progressive are a lot of my social media um, profiles or handles. That would be that. 